0: the joker is cunning in those movies he's cunning and he has this commitment even if you're unsure what it is this joker this is what i thought was so interesting about this full difference this joker is not cunning at all
1: Yo, what is going down? Welcome to Owls at Dawn. We are just two dudes from Southern California who studied philosophy, politics, and religion around the world, and decided to start a podcast where we could bullshit with impunity. I am Austin Haven Smith,
0: and I am Troy Polidori.
1: And this week, we are going to give the fans what they want, Troy. We're going to talk about the Clown movie.
0: Oh, I thought that meant we we're changing ourselves into an entirely like a uh, like skincare-based podcast.
1: We are going to be talking about argan oil and <laughs> apple cider vinegar and bone broth and how you can make the ladies come crawling, bruhs. Come on. That's or what dudes. we are now. Or the dudes, too. Are you a twink? Are you a cub? Are you a bear? Where are you in the spectrum that you can uh, entice people to come to you? Is that boats? What is that a speedboat that I heard coming from your window? What, what is that?
0: No, that was a plane, I think.
1: Oh, it sounded like a speedboat or something. There's a little
0: commuter airport right next to me, so that happens a lot. Oh,
1: right on. Well, anyway, we had gotten a lot of requests that we tackle the Joker movie. So we are going to be talking about Todd Phillips, Joaquin Phoenix, Joker in our main segment. So stay tuned for that in our main segment.
0: That is coming up soon. Yeah, man, we we obey your whims. You are our masters. Tell us what to do. Well, that
1: sounds good to me. I enjoy that. Whoopa.
0: It was also a good excuse to actually go and see the movie.
1: Yeah, that's... insane Ditto. Like, I don't know. Like, I, I didn't really... I mean, I wanted to... I, I was really hyped to see it, I would say, like, a year ago, six months ago, when the teaser trailers came out. And then when it came out and all the hullabaloo surrounding it came out on social media and shit like that, I kind of... It actually did the opposite thing for me. I was kind of like, eh, I don't really want to see it. But then... I then there was like another turn, like a third stage after that where I was kind of like all right, I guess I do fucking want to actually see this movie cuz I did want to see it originally. I just I got annoyed by all of the social commentary surrounding it. Anytime that like all of social media in unison says that you must see something, I automatically am like, "Mm, yeah, must <laughs> Nah. Must
0: I? <laughs> yeah, right. This is the guy who didn't watch Game of Thrones on purpose. So
1: Yeah, I, yeah, exactly. I was literally thinking that in my head right then. Yeah, exactly. I know. So, But anyway, that's what we're going to talk about in the main segment.
0: Before that, we should talk a little bit about supporting us on Patreon, yeah?
1: Yeah, sounds good. So I just released uh, a bonus episode. If people want to check it out, it's based on a talk that I gave about this book launch on Pluriverse. Troy, you and I did an episode. What was it? Couple weeks ago, something like that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What did we talk about again? I fucking literally forgot what we talked about.
0: Holy shit, I don't remember either. What did we talk Oh, was it your K hole experience?
1: Oh, yeah. It was the K hole <laughs> and hospital experience. That's right. Okay. So we've got two fresh bonus episodes that if you want access to, you can check out. What else do people get if they go to Patreon?
0: You get our monthly newsletter, which has extra shitty minutes and extra sticky leaves. In as well as some articles that we recommend and some news about stuff for reading and whatever else we want to talk about. As well as access to our patron sponsored episodes, which we have some some news about the upcoming patron sponsored episode, right?
1: That is right. Next week, Isabel Millar will be joining us fresh off of her time at Duquesne University's in Pittsburgh, uh, the Lacan Ecree conference, and we're going to be talking about the philosophy of psychoanalysis. If you don't know Isabel's work, she writes a lot at Everyday Analysis, which is one of my favorite, like, cultural criticism, critical theory websiteslash blogs. It's everydayanalysis.net, and there's a collective of people who are all, like, post Freudian, Lacanian cultural critic psychoanalyst types and they do amazing work but anyway she's going to be coming on and talking with us about probably some lecon psychoanalysis she does a lot of work on baudrillard etc cetera, etc cetera. but so we will be talking about philosophy psychoanalysis and the intersection between the two because that's what you guys chose as the last uh patron poll
0: you know that an academic blog or website is legit when it has a dot net suffix or whatever yeah. that's called right
1: yeah that yeah, means you're yeah. hardcore
0: right that's pretty
1: hardcore. That means it's like OG. It's been around for at least 27 years.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, my high school band had a .NET website. <laughs>
1: Do you remember when, I don't know if it's still the same, but it depend like it would cost X amount for .com and it would like Y account for .net and then like Z account for .org or whatever. And then it was like, there was like a, a, a sliding scale downwards, .com the most expensive. I think .net was the second most expensive, org was the third, or whatever. It was something like that. Isn't that what it was?
0: I don't remember exactly, but yeah, probably something like that. But then yeah, you something can do anything like- now, right? I think recently they opened up to have any any three letters at the end there.
1: I think, yeah, well, I mean, shoot, Wisecrack, even for email, Wisecrack has a .co.
0: What is that supposed to mean?
1: Like, company?
0: Corporation? Oh. Maybe, I, you I don't you know. Com, yeah.
1: Yeah, because they do COM, yeah. Yeah, because you don't email them at Wisecrack.com or whatever. It's like movies at Wisecrack.co or whatever it is, but it's .co, and they always emphasize that because most people think it's going to be .com, but it's not.
0: Huh. I know. Why I, do I, other I, countries do .co? .co? and then the abbreviation or the acronym of the country, like .co.uk. Why not just do .uk? Yeah,
1: dot, uh, that's interesting. Yeah, and it's not, it's not .com.uk. It's .co.uk. Right? Someone
0: out there, explain to us why what these terms were even called. Are they suffixes? And then what's the purpose of them? Like why, why do we use them as we do?
1: Yeah, that's a very good point. I have no fucking clue. DM us. Email us. Twitter. what anyway, something
0: but anyway yeah that said if you want to <laughs> join in on picking our next patron sponsored episode make sure and uh sign up as soon as you can
1: yeah so you get access to all the bonus content uh past bonus episodes the democracy motherfuckers tier and then of course the monthly newsletter so check that shit out and we're going to be much more consistent with like uh, episodes i mentioned this in the last uh Patron episode that we released, but we're going to be doing like little quick takes, uh, sometimes longer form stuff, but it's going to be, if not weekly, definitely bi-weekly uh, stream of new bonus episodes that are going to be released um, on uh, on Patreon. So go to patreon.com slash dawn and you can get access to that shit.
0: Yeah, yeah. But before we get into talking about anything revolving around the Joker and whatnot, we got to do the thing that sets us off and on a good path every week, Austin. You know what that is, right?
1: I got an inkling.
0: Yeah, it's a shitty minute, man. I'm ready. This is the segment where one of us rants and raves about whatever it is that's grinding our gears this week. So, Austin, what's got you down?
1: So I need to take a deep breath to change gears because this is a little bit more introspective and I'm sure we'll be able to find some kind of humor in this, but I don't really find it that humorous because I've been thinking about it a lot over the past few months and uh, I mean, maybe over the past couple of years, but really over the past month or something like that, it's really started to become a major factor in my thinking. But it's just more about, I feel, not that like I'm having a political crisis, but it's more just thinking about, I feel as though sometimes I have a little bit of imposter syndrome in political circles. And it feels very similar to sentiments that I felt when I felt that imposter syndrome in the church or in religious community. And and it's not that I feel like, because remember, I actually recently have said this, that I feel like politically, I actually am more certain about certain things. Like I know that America is an imperial power kind of stuff. It's less about my diagnosis of the status of the world than it is about the solutions that I feel like I can throw myself into. So it's not its not even about like whether, like I had someone, I, I kind of teased this, that this was going to be my shitty minute and someone on Twitter was like, oh, no, you're not going to reveal that you're like a Trump supporter or something. I'm like, no, 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 like no neo-fascist turn. This isn't like, you know, something like that. You'll um, we'll save that for at. your 50s. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> when I become like a fucking Hillsong pastor or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> no 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 that's that's much later no no it's not even about my diagnosis of the world I still am coming at the world from a kind of radical left marx anarchist communist but it's more about like feeling this pressure to conform within the left that i feel uncomfortable with and i've always felt uncomfortable with and and what here this is i'm just gonna this is like totally scattershot so uh, totally typical Austin. But uh, I had a friend one time I was doing my master's degree. He was a PhD student and he said something politically to me where I, I thought I was being like a good Marxist. And he's like, you're basically just like some sort of weird, like Christian anarchist dude. And I kind of like paused and I was actually really offended when he said that to me. Cause I was like, no, I'm not. Cause I just <laughs> didn't think, I didn't think that had enough street cred. It didn't have enough like political cred to be called like some kind of Christian anarchist dude. But the more I think about it, William
0: Stringfellow was pretty much a badass, right?
1: Yeah. And (laughs) I I, I, honestly, the more I think about it, the more I'm like, fuck, he was more right than maybe, maybe he was like prophetically right. Like I feel like I'm kind of more that now than I ever have been. And and obviously, I would want to qualify both of those terms. But like whenever I'm in these academic settings, whenever I'm in like, um, like a, a political community setting, a social community setting, I, I just never feel quite like I belong, you know? They say stuff and I nod with like 70%, you know? I feel like I'm 70% across the board with, with what's on offer for what it means to be a part of the left. But there's this 30% gap that I feel like is so lacking in these communities. And and I don't know that it's necessarily the fault of the communities. It might just be because I still have this weird guilt and attachment to the religious community. And this might fit into some of the stuff that we've talked about before in the past. Like, you know, like where do you find yourself fitting in in the political communities? And I've talked about like the art communities. I feel most at home in the art communities, like in the theater and in the music scenes and stuff like that. And um, I went to this like, uh, poetry reading. It was like an open night poetry reading recently, and I read some stuff, and other people were reading stuff, and I felt hundred percent at home there. So it's in like in those communities, I don't feel that gap as much. But for some reason, in the political, in the explicit political communities, when people are striking, when people are protesting, when there's a community meeting, when you're having a reading group, when I'm in an academic setting, I just feel a lack, and I don't know thirty percent. I'm just throwing that number out, but. There's something. There's there's something that's missing, and it could very well be me. It could very well be what I'm trying to project into my expectations for what this community is supposed to fulfill that it's not fulfilling. I'm not sure what it is. Um it's something I'm thinking through. It might even be part of like this kind of like level of privilege that I have that I'm allowed to even reflect on myself. You know, like if you're really in a situation of political turmoil, you don't even have the time to be like, "No, nah. I don't know what I believe about my constructive project that I'm going to invest <laughs> myself in. You just have to fucking do something, right? So maybe there's also a, like a malaise for being a part of like an upper class petite bourgeois kind of uh, kind of setting that, I, that I'm just experiencing, that I'm aware of. But whatever it is, I'm not 100% sure how to articulate it fully, but there's a sense that I get that there's just something that doesn't quite click. And it isn't in the diagnostic stage, like I said, but it's much more in the positive. Like, what activities am I going to throw myself into in reconstructing new worlds, in participating in the building of alternatives? It's that lack that I feel isn't on offer in a lot of the communities that I'm a part of and a lot of the situations that I'm involved in, you know? Even as much as I can feel comfortable and at home in them. You know me, I'm a chameleon. Like, like, Paul, be all things to all people kind of thing. I don't have a problem being in those things, but I still feel like I'm not whole when I'm there. You know? Does that make any sense?
0: Yeah. Do you think that... So you're contrasting the the kind of political sphere you're talking about that has this sort of lack, or at least you're experiencing a sort of lack from it. And then the artistic and creative sphere is you don't feel that way. Do you 100%. think that, that that's that's a contrast more about the content Um of the spheres or is it something about like the performance of people in the spheres and what's expected of you in terms of performance there
1: I mean I wonder if it's both but I definitely definitely when you when you mention the performance and the formal my body perks up because I think it's more that than anything you know like like uh the liturgy of protesting to me is so drab and dull right um That's part of it. The consensus that takes place in certain community settings is something that I find to be so mimetic and superficial that that kind of bothers me sometimes. So there is something about the performance, the expression, the kind of formal element that I think is the most immediately apparent thing that I have a problem with. So I'm sure that's a huge part of it. But I'm sure there's also something with the content. Just that I'm not sure what projects I want to actually throw myself into. Like, like I'll be completely honest. Okay, here's a perfect example. Uh, Climate justice is the huge thing that is on the forefront of everybody's minds. I'm a part of a climate justice collective here. I love the organization. The work that they're doing is great. I haven't been as involved lately because of my surgery and then because I'm playing mad catch-up and I've got all kind of other things that are kind of taking my time so it's not that I don't believe in the cause I 100% do but I'll be completely honest the thing that I think is most effective or maybe not most effective though the right course I think I'm a degrowth guy but like and I'm not saying that this group that I'm a part of wouldn't advocate certain things like that because you know there's like a productive tension and everyone's kind of doing things but I kind of I'm kind of like a little bit anarcho-primitivist degrowth like disinvest kind of dude you know And when you say that shit around, like, large-scale Marxists that want to do big state-building counter-hegemonic strategies, they look at you like you're, like, some weird dude that just wants to go back to the tribal ages. (laughs) But honestly, like, I think that's the most desirable and the most feasible course of action to actually transform the problems that are facing us. Whereas, like, the social democracy route, which... Again, I'm not shitting on the Climate Justice Collective that I'm a part of. They're a fantastic group of people, but let's now transition to saying what are most people talking about with like green investment and green new deals, for example, in the United States. It's the social democracy route. I actually think that that is ultimately counterintuitive and that will ultimately benefit capital in the long term, even though it might have material benefits that will provide some sort of alleviation of climate breakdown in the near future. I think ultimately it actually uh, sets up the perfect playground for the new feudal lords to take over and transform the the conditions for capital accumulation. So I ultimately am kind of like, fuck, man, the degrowth strategy, the slow movement, that, that kind of stuff seems much more accurate. But then again, how do you build large-scale programs from within that paradigm? How do you – is that feasible? Like, that's the next thing. Like, it might be ultimately desirable and it might be the most effective if it were possible to implement across the board, but is it the most Feasible in the sense of actually implementing it from within the current material conditions. No, maybe it doesn't seem that way. So then I'm kind of torn between the two. But in my heart of hearts, I still think that's the right course of action. But you can't say that shit within certain circles. You know what I mean? So then I feel like I'm in just this – I feel very similar to when I was at Masters and everybody else was hardcore Calvinist. They believe in like a pre-tribulational rapture and then I'm reading (laughs) – and I'm reading like, the Greek. This is some
0: post of shit that I'm reading in Thessalonians. Yeah, <laughs> I'm reading Thessalonians, and I'm
1: like, no, that's not what's going on there. He's literally announcing the return of the king, the trumpet sound, all the language that's being used. I'm like, I'm like, that's not what's happening in this passage. Like, that's how I feel. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah, there's this level of um, I mean, I don't know if it's the right term, but it seems kind of like a like a dogmatism, right? Where it's there's a policing of of ideas such that um in order to have efficiency of, of dialogue, right, excluding things that are determined to be out of bounds, um, you end up like basically uh, strangling any creative thought amongst people.
1: Okay, and so that's my, that's my next element is I, I kind of want to write a book on this called like The Politics of Certainty. And this is the thing that I think is another element. This might be the formal element is I feel like, and I don't know if other people out there like listeners, you can tell me what you think, but do you not feel sometimes intimidated by other people's certainty in their political commitments? Because I do because people, and I think this is very similar to the same kind of intimidation that I felt when people were so convinced about certain theological beliefs, because I just don't know that I'm that certain about anything, dude. Like I'm holding a piece of, Plasticky rubber or whatever the fuck this is in my hand, and I'm not even certain that I'm holding this in my hand, you know? Like, so how the fuck am I supposed to be certain that X course of political action is the right course of action, and therefore I invest my entire life into that in the same way that how am I supposed to believe that I believe pre-tribulational rapture or in covenant theology as opposed to dispensational theology? There's like an analogous relation here between my, my fear or my... Ambivalence towards certainty in religion that kind of is translating now into my fear and ambivalence towards certainty in political praxis. And it's just a very uncomfortable position to be in because I'm around so many people who are so committed and they're so certain about what they believe in. And so I feel intimidated sometimes because I'm like, shit, man, I don't know. And so I wonder, is there something that I should, that, that's venerable about like being so certain, a politics of certainty, or should I also then welcome this idea that I have a little bit of doubt and that there is a politics of doubt that we need to be open to and that maybe we can incorporate in our political circles because maybe the politics of certainty is stifling other people's questions and space for productive criticism because they feel that dogmatism that they have to like submit themselves and subordinate themselves under, you know?
0: Yeah, this is a topic I think we've talked about from many different angles before. I'm just thinking, you know, most of my favorite sort of contemporary or 20th century thinkers are people who are able to square in practice this, um, or at least resolve this antagonism between the clear uncertainty that we're justified in having, right? About all matters, philosophical, theological, whatever, right? And we talked about this with the the first chapter, I think, of G.A. Cohen's book on egalitarianism, Right. Um, mm. This epistemic uncertainty, which uh, undergirds all of our beliefs and that we have to constantly have in mind. Um, we talked about this with uh, Thomas Nagel talking about it in um, The Absurd, right? And that The Absurd kind of arises from this inability to ultimately justify our most important beliefs in a way that seems to fit with how seriously we take what we do and what we think. Mm. And so you, you have to accept that, but you that also can't lead to skepticism right? Like practical skepticism, because you still have to act and you still have to believe and you still have to do stuff. Um, you can't really fully accept that kind of skepticism into your life in a practical sense. And so how do you square that antagonism? Um, and it's super hard, but that seems like kind of the the ultimate like human project, right? It's to find a way to do that, that um, is not entirely unjustified in some way. And so, yeah, there, there, there seems to have to be a way to accept doubt um into a political project that nonetheless actually moves forward and does something, right? Like would this be like a like a Kierkegaardian politics? Do we need uh Burns on to talk about this?
1: I was literally just thinking that. Yeah, because he wrote the <laughs> he literally wrote the book on this, right? Yeah. I mean, what would a politics of doubt look like? I mean, that would be a really interesting philosophical ex or, or politico philosophical exploration, like a politics of certainty, a politics of doubt kind of thing, right? What would that actually look like? And what would that mean? And then how do we internalize that as individuals, right? That's that's the hard thing because, again, like you say, at some point you need to just shut the fuck up and stop being so self-indulgent and then just do shit because the world is more important than you at the same time, right? Yeah. So I don't know. And then here's the other shitty thing. Then I also feel is all of this neurotic obsession just a product of that religious guilt that is being imposed upon me that's like you're just being self-indulgent you're being selfish just stop thinking about yourself the church quote unquote is bigger than you you know what I mean so that I still feel like I've got this fucking religious big other that is suppressing it or not that is just like um compressing down upon me and that that is affecting a, a certain political outlook and I don't know if other people deal with this. I mean, I'm sure other humans in the world have dealt with this. But I mean, like, sometimes I sit there and I'm like, does everybody is everybody a true believer except for me? And it's this weird, like, imposter syndrome thing. You know? I,
0: gu- I guarantee you everybody who has like a good faith, a level of introspection deals with that. And also, like, yeah, it is self-indulgent. There's no doubt about that, right? And it can even be dangerously self-indulgent at times. But the the accusation that it's self-indulgent just get over it doesn't actually issue any practical syllogism for you like how does that help you (laughs) okay i'll stop (laughs) okay but then what (laughs) do what i don't have i don't have any impetus to do anything from that
1: it's like we were talking about last week with the will to believe you can't force yourself to believe that it's not raining outside if it is raining outside
0: yeah the accusation of of self-indulgence while sometimes accurate if it ends there it, it doesn't issue any action it just issues inaction it just issues probably actually moves you more towards doubt because it's just an, a just a command for obedience right a demand for obedience
1: that's right it just induces more guilt ultimately or it can induce more guilt
0: because yeah, you, you anything, just feel, it feel it just more self- like that's the problem yeah exactly
1: yeah so yeah man that's just been my thing just it's this strange and I think I'm just becoming more sensitive to it. And and I wonder if I'm becoming more sensitive to it. I mean, I'm sure there's a bunch of reasons why, but I wonder if I'm also becoming more sensitive to it because I'm also starting to care a little bit more. And I know for me, I tend to be just historically, I'm, I'm quite non-committal with things, right? Like it's really easy for me to be a scatterbrain, a vagabond, bounce around. I have experimented with all kinds of different places and activities, and I've done a million different things. And so there's a sense in which when you engage in a community that there's a commitment involved and when there's a commitment involved you kind of cut yourself off from other things and maybe there's a sense in which i'm kind of almost rebelling from the sense that i'm cutting myself off from these other things you know and so i'm i'm like forcing myself to reconcile with what things am i comfortable cutting myself off from so maybe that's part of it as well you know just the the overall sense of having to cut myself off is kind of inducing this recognition not even necessarily specifically in terms of content. Like it's, I have to not be an anarcho-communist, but I have to be whatever. You know, not even specifically that, but just the sense that I'm becoming more committed to certain things makes me aware of the fact that I'm being committal. And that the idea of commitment itself is fearful. Does that make any sense? I know that's super vague, but maybe.
0: No, I think you're you're more like uh, Paul than even you think, dude. You're <laughs> preaching this gospel, but you're not even sure what it is. <laughs> <laughs> oh
1: jesus maybe yeah yeah let's maybe n- just
0: not end up in prison though yeah yeah bottom <laughs>
1: that, that, that's it dude although if i can use my roman citizenship to get myself out although that didn't end up well for him did it
0: no it did not the second time it didn't <laughs> end up well the second time it did not
1: <laughs> yeah all right so my american citizenship will only get me so far
0: <laughs> all right should we talk about the joker
1: yeah let's do it man let's get into
0: it <laughs> All right, so you talked a little bit at the beginning of the episode about how about the sort of cultural context behind the movie, right? And just to recapitulate that for a second, it seems like I remember hearing about this movie being made at least a year ago, right? If not more, there's there's been some you know hubbub around it for for quite a while. Yeah. Um, I think it was known from the beginning that, given that Todd Phillips was the one doing it, that this was not going to be sort of extension of the. A uh, normal DC Joker. I shouldn't say normal DC Joker because that's that's a that's a variable uh, character there. But um, what's what's his name from Thirty Seconds to Mars? Jared Leto, who played him in mm, Suicide yeah. Squad. I never saw mm-hmm. that, but it was obviously the very cartoonish, uh, like asshole, um, completely non-ideological Joker. And this was not going to be that. Right? Was sort of obvious from the beginning. Walking Phoenix was not going to jump in and play that character or something like that no. character. Um, they were going to make a, at least uh, maybe not manifestly, but a, a, a kind of political joker in some sense, or at least a social political joker.
1: Um, and I would say an explicitly human joker, right? Rather than the cartoonish, rather than the caricature. I think it was going to be intentionally grounded, right? At least that was the effort.
0: Yeah, grounded. I mean... I don't know if I'd say human, although I think that's true. I'm not sure if people would na- naturally take it that way, given the sort of explicitly um, mentally ill character, right? Um, mm. Now that, that that doesn't mean that that mentally ill people are inhuman, of course not, but that people n- wouldn't typically take it as, oh yeah, that's I, that's something that I experience and that I sympathize with, right? They should probably, but. Um, Maybe, I think, grounded more just in the kind of social-political sense, right? Like, he lives in a world like ours and experiences in a world like ours, has experiences in a world like ours, which isn't the case in okay. Also, comic book movies, right? Because the rules are different, right? Um, yeah. In comic book movies, people do things where you would die in the real world, and they don't die, and they're not even really right. in danger, right? And you know that going in, so they can kind of wink at the danger. Um, mm. And that kind of loss of realism is important for the genre because you kind of have to believe these people are going to win and be okay in the end. And that's definitely not the case. in Joker here. Exactly. And that wasn't the case. I don't think in, in sort of Nolan's Batman films either. It's very different than this film in terms of tone and what, and stuff like that. But um, there was, there was certainly a sort of, a sort of realism to those uh, films as well.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that's part of the reason why people were drawn to Ledger's Joker in the first place, I mean, granted the performance was outstanding, but I think comparing that to Jack Nicholson in yeah. <laughs> uh, Tim Burton's Batman, Jack Jack Nicholson's bat or uh, Joker is very cartoony, whereas Ledger's just seemed to be obviously he was extraordinary, but there was something so rooted in him, right? Like, yeah, there's the bits where he is, you know, he's kind of, he can't kill the guy and um, he obviously has strength and training and he's not a normal human. It's not like Austin dressed up in Joker. Like this guy clearly has special skills, um, but there was still something about his logic that really resonated with people, Right. And it's not just the, like, Alfred, some people just want to see the world burn, or, you know, then the famous things by by Ledger, when he's like, you know, I'm like a dog chasing a car, I don't even know what I would do if I would catch one sort of thing. It's not even the lines, but there was something about the performance, the character, that was just so rooted in the world, in the tone, in the scene, of particularly the Dark Knight, that just seemed to kind of create the perfect harmony or resonance. And I I think that that kind of created a different type of, I mean just the whole the whole superhero genre was transformed by that trilogy anyway but it created a different type of feel for what it meant to make this type of film about quote unquote superheroes you know they again they maybe it's not human but they felt more politically and socially immersed let's say
0: yeah i think it's maybe an unpopular opinion but i think that one big reason why ledger's joker was so um magnified in culture and so um Like eye-catching on on screen was, you know, most really great villains in in kind of fantastical films typically are very magnetic, right? They're they're charismatic and they draw your attention, and they have this sort of certainty of purpose, right? Great villains always fully are invested in whatever their end goal is, right? Um, Mm. Think of like uh, what's his name from Black Panther, Um, Michael B. Jordan's character, Kill
1: Kill Killmonger. Kill. Yeah,
0: I don't remember these kills. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah. But uh I'm making a zizekian point about the about the formal aspects, even not knowing the content.
1: Uh <laughs> um, yeah, or Thanos, Thanos and Avengers.
0: Yeah, I mean he's like, kinda like the almost almost like cartoonish version of, of this kind of thing, right? Certainty of purpose where it just so obviously should not exist and is totally <laughs> unjustified <laughs> in every way. Um, whereas in right. Black Panther, Killmonger, whatever his name is, actually has some some good reasons for uh, for his certainty of purpose. Um but I mean Thanos is mal- neo Malthusianism is you're kinda like, yeah I kind of get it, man. He literally never, ever actually give reasons for why killing half the universe is going to help. He never, no one even asks him, why do you <laughs> think this is going to help? They just accept it. No, I do not accept neo Mathusianism um, on principle. <laughs> it's not even a prima facie good argument, dude. Come on. What is it? Uh, self-evident? Uh, if anything's uh, self-evident, it's not that. Oh, um, uh, Jesus. Yeah. All okay, right. Anyway, that's my, I've already rented about that in this podcast, I think. So, yeah, even though I think people will look at the Joker from Ledger's Joker and say his character was sort of unclear about his objectives and he constantly changes his narrative, right? He famously has several different origin stories, right, um, about how he got his um, scars and stuff like that, right? So Mm. he's kind of like he's never really set um, as an objective, uh, like a readable thing. He clearly has certainty of purpose. Right, he knows what he's doing at every. He shows up to every scene in the movie with a plan. Right, he castigates Batman for having plans and schemes. Right, but he clearly has plans and schemes. You're just not sort of shown what they are. They're not obvious. They don't follow from an obvious ideological commitment the way Batman does. Right, um, mm. so he's like a like a committed deconstructionist in a sense, and that seems to be that kind of marriage doesn't really exist um, amongst villains or at least I hadn't at that time. It's that, I think that's why, along with Ledger's really great performance and Nolan's incredible direction, that that's what makes the character so interesting. The Joker is cunning in those movies, right? Mm. He's cunning and he has this commitment, even if you're unsure what it is. He's driven by it. This Joker, this is what I thought was so interesting about the total difference and the disconnect between this Joker and Ledger's Joker. Um, this Joker is not cunning at all. Right, He doesn't have a certainty of purpose at all until the last five minutes of the movie, and even then it's only implied. Um, so that's the sense in which he seems much more human, right? He's just kind of existing in the world, being reactive, um, being pushed around by all the different elements of the world, both by persons and um, political environments and everything else, right? Mm. And that I thought was really interesting about the beginning. or right? The opening scene is him getting his uh, sign stolen and getting the shit kicked out of him, right? Mm. He's totally helpless in the world, not sort of uh character of immense certainty that exists in Ledger's depictions, which happen okay. later on. Is
1: it an oversimplification to say that this is just sort of like a character backstory prequel? This is how the Joker becomes the Joker. And then once we see him in Arkham Asylum at the end when he kills, by the way, spoilers, all episode. Um, when he kills the therapist in the room and, you know, he's walking away with the blood f- Uh, bloody footprints, and the orderlies are chasing him. That that's the moment when he like becomes the quote unquote Joker. You know, like is this the prequel? And then so then we could even say that this is what leads Joker to become the Joker that we're all familiar with. Even though I know that there are many variants that exist in the comic books, but that this is like okay, this is like a psychoanalytic explanation for how he becomes Joker.
0: I don't think so. I think that's I think there's an ultimate disconnect between this and at least ledger's joker i haven't seen a lot of the other ones and i only know like jack nicholson's joker and that's pretty much it um i don't know the comic book versions and stuff like that but it seems to me like no this is a completely different uh, telling of the character um we can get into this and but um you know the story here is of somebody undergoing like subjective destitution right um and then it seems like in the end becoming a character of pure chaos. And that's not what happens. At least it does not seem to be what uh the the Joker in Ledger's version um has as his sort of uh, guiding principle, right? Ledger's Joker has a sort of um intentionality to him, right? Like he's clearly he? doing things for a, for a very particular reason, even if you're not clued into what it is, and even if it's not consistent. Right? He's doing things, he's trying to prove something. Specifically Gosh, to but- Batman. He's very clearly, he goes on long philosophical di- diatribes to Batman about the nature of human being, right? Like he's, he's a philosopher of a sort, just a deconstructionist. To- totally. Type. And this Joker is not that right. He doesn't, at the end, he doesn't philosophize. He stands on a car hood and dances, right?
1: Yeah. but He's, then there he's like that more bits.
0: Nietzschean, like, you know, a dancing, a god that dances kind of a thing
1: than Dionys then Then Dionys- Dionysian rather than Apollonian. Yeah. But but then there's those bits where Joker's like I don't have a plan. He even says a, he's like, what are you talking about a plan? I don't have a plan. But he you know, does he constantly. He's says, a liar, dude. <laughs> yeah, that, and that's why because he lies about his scars. He does lie. And then there's the bit too. Remember where Alfred is like, you know, some men just want to watch the world burn. So maybe Which is there's wrong, a misunder- right? Maybe they misunderstand Ledger's Joker. But-, but
0: I love Alfred's line there because it's basically the, con- the conservative uh, or even like classical liberal reaction to. Deconstructionist type of critique. Oh, it's just chaos for chaos' sake, right? Mm. It's enjoyment. It's pure enjoyment, right? Which I mean, yeah, there's, a, there's a, certainly a sense in which clearly Joker enjoys destroying these things, right? Um, but he he does it like he enjoys it because he thinks, that in some sense, like he's proving something, right? He's showing that these things ultimately have no foundation, that they're all they're all lies, right? Batman is a lie, and he shows it, right? Batman has to lie about Harvey Dent um, being the hero. Um, so yeah, but I, I don't want to spend this whole episode comparing the two Jokers. But I thought it was interesting how different seemed to me yeah. this character was than what you would think the origin story of Ledger's Joker would be. If there, yeah. I mean, there really can't be. That's the thing, right? Ledger's bat, Ledger's Joker doesn't have an origin story. He
1: has many. That's why they've got stories. That's why they've got the thousands of, like, fan speculations. It's like, ah, he's an Iraq war veteran, or he's a this, or he's a... I mean, there's so many different theories about who Ledger's Joker was, right? But the kind of idea is like, no, stop. Like, you don't need to give him an origin story. Which is good,
0: right? I'm glad they didn't try to do that. Or at least seemed to me like they didn't clearly try to do that. Yeah. Okay, so, first of all, did you like the film? We should talk about that. Okay,
1: so... I went to see it and I went in with high hopes because I've been very excited to see this ever since I saw the first teaser trailer a while back, which was like, it looked like gritty, almost uh, hidden camera kind of thing or like found footage kind of thing where it's like him getting kicked out of a clown school or whatever the fuck it was. I was really excited. I think and you Joaquin have a man crush is,
0: on, on Joaquin, right?
1: I think he's one of our finest male actors that's out there at the moment. He is fantastic. Did you ever see uh, You Were Never Really Here? yeah. Oh, my God, is he not amazing in that? <laughs> like, I think he's fucking fantastic as an actor. So I was like, okay, this is going to be amazing. Um, And then I know that there was a bunch of hullabaloo surrounding the film. I didn't read any think pieces. I barely paid attention to any of the controversy, the dramas. I know you'd mentioned a little bit to me uh, last week or the week before, whatever it was, when we chatted about it, but I really did not pay much attention to what the American news media was freaking out about or anything like that. So I went in with, you know, not too much clouding my judgment, and I went in with high hopes. And for some reason, I'd say about two-thirds, three-quarters of the way through, I kind of was like, huh, It like I just wasn't into it anymore and I've had a really difficult time trying to figure out why I felt that way. And then by the end of the film it was hard for it to recapture that excitement again. Like I was into it for the first half I would say, first third to the first half and then something happened in that maybe the second act troubles. But it just kind of slowed it down for me, and it didn't get me back in the third act. And I have a bunch of different reasons from a plot and narrative perspective why I think that's the case. And then I have some more conceptual and theoretical issues that I have with the film. And I would say ultimately by the time that the credits rolled, I thought it was a decent film with some elements that were amazing. I think Phoenix's performance is amazing. I think some of the direction was okay, but ultimately I think some of the direction fell a little flat. Some of the pacing, I think, was a little bit off. I think the way they built some of the stakes between the characters didn't quite fit for me. I think some of it was cliche. I think the supposed reveal that it was like him hallucinating about the relationship with the neighbor was obvious and kind of cheesy. And so yeah, I feel like some have of done it. That. Yeah. So and that for me really kind of took me out of it. And so I think there were some elements that didn't ultimately quite work for me. It's, it's a good film. I didn't think it was a great film. And I ultimately don't think it deserves all the fucking fur that it's getting. And I think that um, a lot of it is just that because it deals very loosely with anything that might be conceived of as being political or socially bent, that, like, everyone is losing their goddamn mind over it. And really, I wish I would have gone in without so much political and social expectation. And I wish I would have just gone in just like, I just want to see a film about like the fucking Joker and watch Joaquin Phoenix be fucking awesome. You know?
0: Yeah. I do wonder if um, there's any possible way to consider this film outside of the kind of cultural reaction to it from the many different sides. Right. Probably not. Uh, and even like going into it with the, you know, the constant anxiety that the you know liberal media has been promoting about there being a, a mass shooting at, at a, of showing at the, of the movie, right? Um, it's almost like MSNBC was like begging somebody to shoot up a theater so they could talk about it and blow for four weeks about uh, the danger of incels and comic books and stuff like that. Um, and which was interesting because, you know, I, I saw the movie um, a couple days after it came out, and the theater was probably three quarters of the way full um, in a smaller town, so it it's, doesn't really sell out too much here. And there was a couple of cops outside uh, the mm. theater after the movie. And I, I don't know if that's normally the case. I don't think so. I could be wrong about that, though. And I was just, I was just um, more attuned to it because of the, all the, the hubbub and anxiety around the showing. But it was funny mm. that I kind of came out of the theater and I realized in like a, like a flash um, that I'm the person who's probably most likely to be an issue here. Like I had the same hair length as the Joker, like a similar hairstyle, <laughs> but mm. I'm a white guy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I'm kind of like awkward. Like that's, wow, what if like they're looking at me and being like, that's the guy we got to watch out for. Like, that was the first time I think I've ever been oh seen my by a cop yeah, in that yeah. way. <laughs> but oh, I thought for a second, crazy. this is how other people feel all the time when they see cops. Holy shit, this sucks. Mm. <laughs> mm. And of course, I, I can get rid of it in a second, right? Because um, yeah. they're not really that worried about me, but. For a second, I kind of knew what it felt like, just a little bit
1: to be be seen by a cop. Yeah.
0: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, you can't really divorce the viewing of the movie from all those experiences and all that information.
1: Yeah, I wonder if I see it in a couple of years, you know, like on my laptop at home or whatever it is. I wonder if I'll be able to kind of avoid a lot of the baggage, the cultural baggage that's attached to it. But I did go in, even though I didn't read the think pieces, I still, I couldn't get away from it. I still knew what the expectations were. I, I, I was, you couldn't not, right? I mean, as active as I am on Twitter. It, and other It's trying to,
0: to make the movie through those lenses also. Like it's very, it's not subtle <laughs> about these things. Yeah, all. that's
1: true. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, and I just wonder if if I would see this movie within a political context that wasn't so filled with tension as our current moment is, where people are literally freaking the fuck out. I, I can't be in a progressive left or radical uh, kind of social or political setting where people aren't fucking voicing how much they're freaking out and worried about something, right? Whether it's the housing crisis uh, and the, like the real estate markets, like Sydney's the most expensive city in the world now apparently because of the housing prices or that the, the housing market. Uh, and then you've got uh, like climate breakdown and the students are all freaking out. And like literally they're freaking out. Like they actually are freaking out. And it's like I can't be in a setting without just hearing this anxiety. So I wonder if this film could somehow be viewed in a different context where it's not immediately brought into all of those political and social anxieties, if it wouldn't mean something different than what it did mean to me, and if that wouldn't allow me to appreciate it in a different light. But considering that I was not able to see it in that weird vacuum of an alternate universe, um, and I did see it in our current context, I couldn't help but see it as, okay, and especially then after seeing it and then now reading the think pieces, I can't help but now not judge it against the way that it's being received and interpreted by the one side who are viewing it as, okay, this is a film that is somehow either valorizing violence or glorifying violence or somehow speaking about um, or trying to encourage people to break free from the societal restraints, or then the other side that's like, no, 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 this is a film about like, uh, the consequences of uh, kind of structural oppression and exploitation, which is kind of like the leftist, like Micra, Micah, what's his name? Utrecht, Utrecht, or yeah. Alt- Utrecht, whatever his name is, yeah, the guy that writes for Jacobin. Um, I think he's an editor for Jacobin, but he wrote that Guardian Think piece, right? That kind of yeah. got bounced around quite a bit. And that was his argument that, no, this isn't like um, some sort of manifesto for the alt-right, but this is actually like um, a perfect companion piece to illuminate the problems of structural uh structural violence structural oppression structural exploitation of capitalism the ultimate problem that i had with that think piece then is then he just ends up with advocating social democracy and i'm like well that's not the fucking conclusion that you get from this again that's just goes back to my shitty minute where that just seems like some boring political alternative or reconstructive project that you offer i'm like really no it's got to be something so much more so i just felt like both of those conclusions the kind of like alt-right liberal individual glorifying violence whatever that side is those people were wrong then like the structural kind of marxist interpretation of the film that was wrong too and i feel like i'm not satisfied with either of them and then here i am standing on my fucking island and i feel like well i'm the crazy person because i don't like either of those choices but those are the only choices that the political sphere is offering to me at the moment so that's how I felt about this film, or that's how I feel about this film. I feel like my experience of the film doesn't fit within whatever everybody else is trying to offer me.
0: You yeah, know? and I think, I think that that's, I don't know if that's necessarily a strength or a weakness of the film, but I think that that's correct, and that it, it doesn't neatly fit in any of these categories. Um, if anything, it just doesn't seem to have a very clear vision about what it even is. That doesn't mean that the Joker has to stand on the car and and, and give a speech at the end about why he's doing what he's doing. That would obviously be go against <laughs> the point of the character, right? But it does mean that there, there, there can still be a clarity of vision in the film, an illocutionary nature to the film, like what it's doing that just isn't there, which is okay. I mean, not every film has to um, be clear in that way. And it, and it's definitely right. trying to be an art film in, in, a, in a sense that you know many art films don't have that clarity of vision. And part of the response to the art film is that you're supposed to develop the different and contradictory ways in which it can be interpreted, right? that's That's totally okay. It's not a critique of the film to say that um but then of course we rush to our interpretations right uh, mm. and have certainty about about them and battle over who gets to have authority over this this you know piece of art and so yeah i, I agree with you that the, the the sort of um liberal telling of the film which is that it's you know this like a biography of incels or whatever or like a, a sympathetic letter to incels well why you should care about them and stuff it's just, that's just obviously wrong um it's not that at all that said, he does, in like the paramount sort of scene in the film, shoot Stephen Colbert in the face, <laughs> mm. right? Uh, or like Jimmy Fallon, Stephen Colbert, Jimmy Kimmel, like rolled into the Jay world, Leno,
1: right? um, somebody.
0: Yeah, and, and I mean, maybe he's patterned more after David Letterman, uh, Robert De Niro's character, um, than anybody else. But, you know, it does seem like, you know, Colbert and, and Fallon and these people, especially Colbert, seem to be kind of like, the way most people you know, gestate their politics today, like what does mm-hmm. Colbert think about the dumb shit that Trump did today? Right, let's go watch, watch the Late Show or whatever and and figure it out. And so going on TV and 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 having the Joker kill his father figure, right? Which is you know he kind of sees um, both Thomas Wayne and De Niro's Late Late Show character as being kind of like father figures to him, right? Just going and killing the father, killing the god. It's extremely symbolic, right? That's the moment when he finally becomes free and opens up in a way. Um, that I think is much more than just, yeah, this is definitely a socialist film or something like that, right? <laughs> right. No, no, this is this is much more of a psychoanalytic uh understanding of of like you know, mental breakdown that's produced by uh poor social conditions and stuff like that, which has a lefty element to it, right? It's obvious that. A lot of what happens to Joker happens because of structural social conditions, in addition to, you know, personal issues that happen to him, right? Romantic rejection and um, a complicated relationship with his mother, and um, the the like disgusting nature of New York, Gotham, whatever in the Gotham, yeah, um, in the city, Uh, yeah, those are meant to be there for a reason, right? It mixes the personal and individual with the structural and social. All being alienating for him. I mean, it's not subtle at all when the uh, African American social worker tells him the people in power don't give a shit about you, they don't give a shit about me either. Like, (laughs) that's screaming Hmm. for lefty solidarity, right? That's definitely on purpose. Totally.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And then there's obvious nods to the fact that like social funding is cut. So he's kicked out of this um therapeutic relationship that he has where he's able to get access to his medication and then obviously his weekly or whatever it is meetings that he has so that is clearly some sort of like the dismantling of the welfare system and the supremacy of austerity Um, so yeah again that that fits very well within the democratic socialist or the social democratic or the post welfare kind of left um left progressive maybe moving into radical Marxist interpretations and critiques of society, right? Like that fits very well with that. But for some reason it just felt like that there's this battle line that's being drawn and you have one side that's like, no, this film is X, and the other side is like, no, this film is Y. And I actually think that both of them are right and therefore both of them are wrong at the same time. Because it's kind of doing a little bit of everything, right?
0: Well here's my problem with the social democratic interpretation. Um uh, like you said, it, it's kind of absurd to say, the film is telling you if there were good social services, everything would be fine. <laughs> and it's like, uh, no, yeah, it's not saying that this, at all. <laughs> this is why we need to
1: vote for Bernie, and that's what the film is saying. It's like, no, and that's how Micah's article ends in The Guardian. And I was like, oh, come on.
0: I mean, I get it. Yeah, that's, that's like, just clearly absurd, um, I think. <laughs> right. it, it's, like, it's correct that things would have been better if he had had a good – like, if he, – if, he, if, if if um what what's his name in the actual – an actual film. Arthur Fleck. Arthur. If, yeah. Arthur. If, if he had been born in Norway, he would have been fine. <laughs> something like that. Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. No, definitely not saying that. <laughs> no, of course There's something not. human about him that is universalizable. Um, and not just for, you know, like Americans in uh, like and, the Reagan universe or whatever, but, and that's where so the
1: liberal, and that's where the liberal argument comes in, right? Cause then it becomes an individual case rather than just purely a structural case.
0: Yeah. And so, in addition to that point, which I think you're, you're absolutely correct about it, the social democratic interpretation kind of misses the really human element besides the, the structural element or that kind of coalesces together with the structural element in a way. Um, it also seems to me, it seems to me like the, the metaphor throughout the film that I was super interested in was the stairs. So there's like four or five scenes oh, where you yeah. see him walking up and down the huge ass yes. set of stairs in Gotham, right? Yeah, yeah, and the beginning of the film they constantly show him drudgingly walking up these stairs with his shoulders slumped just oppressed by everything oppressed by the literal infrastructure of the city that he has to walk up these like ten flights of stairs to get home or whatever it is mm-hmm. right um, and it's dirty and it's gross and there's other people on it and just everything's nasty and brutish and short and hobbsy and terrible in Gotham right mm-hmm. um, and then the clear kind of Meme, like most memified part of the film is him walking down the stairs but not walking dancing with dancing. pure joy while the gary glitter the cops paid yeah, uh, a song <laughs>
1: that's right <laughs> so and it's, then it's the cops up. are at the top of the stairs and yeah
0: yeah so it's like him dancing down the stairs is this iconic image now i think it's done on purpose right it's meant to be this incredible contrast with the oppression he feels um in the beginning and he's oppressed even though he has still some access to the good social services. He's still on medication. He's still seeing a social worker, right? Mm. When those things go away, he becomes kind of free in a sense, right? When he starts engaging in violence, he becomes free and begins to enjoy in some sense, which Mm. he had never really experienced before. Right? And so, yes, it's not advocating. The film is clearly not advocating violence. You're meant to be repulsed when he, chases after the third wall street guy and shoots him right like mm-hmm. you're okay with it at first because those guys were assholes and they were harassing a woman and he was defending himself he was being getting the shit out of him. right yeah
1: the first one seems like self-defense yeah, Right. but the then second chases- one is a the third one you're like oh fuck now he's he's uh proactively seeking
0: violence yeah you're meant to be repulsed by that you're meant to be and yeah. amb- not, amb- you're meant to be have an ambiguous feeling about the like um the, re- the kind of revolt and the chaos um, and looting and destruction of stuff that's happening at the end of the movie. Right? You're not supposed to be like, like rooting and like you know pumping your fist or anything. So it's not advocating violence, but it is showing you that there's a sense in which he's free. Like he, his shoulders are back now, right? Like he's mm. experiencing a kind of fullness of life that he hadn't experienced before. Dancing is a universally positive state of mind and state of body, right? Yeah. There's yeah. n- you can't show dancing and be like, yeah, this is bad or clearly bad or something like that, right? um
1: don't, villains you also don't notice normally
0: dance for that reason.
1: His dances were choreographed. It was almost like he had practiced this. It wasn't just like a jig that he just busted out. It was almost like balletic, like he had had training as a child or something like that. I don't know if there was a reference to that and I missed it, but- the the way that he was moving, it was like he had studied contemporary dance or something, you know? And the movements were very similar because um, he would repeat them. And I thought that was very interesting as well. It was almost, there was some sense in which this was practiced. There was some sense in which he was comfortable in, he had found his rhythm, so to speak. Maybe it was suppressed or repressed, but that now the rhythm had emerged and it emerged through the song and the kind of physical expression of dance, um, which was kind of interesting.
0: Yeah. I think giving him an artistic expression like that was super important given that he's yeah. you know, clearly mentally ill. And so you might think that this is a character who, if he reacts in violence, it's purely reactive, right? Mm. It's just like a, like a machine reacts or like an animal reacts when you kick it. And that's, Wrong, obviously, right? People who suffer from mental illness can still have like intentions and um, can create things, obviously. And so um, that was I think important for developing his character that way, not making him purely reactive. But that's important, I think, because the social democratic interpretation is kind of meant to make you think it's purely reactive. Like this is just what barbarism looks like when capitalism runs amok, right? Um, right. This is the result you get, right? And so that that seems wrong. This is sort of. Um, this is meaningful to him in Mm. some way. And that's kind of scary, right? Like I think the virtue of the film is that it offers, it kind of gently points at this idea that like, you know, revolution is kind of like enjoyable and make you feel icky and make you feel icky about that. Like think about that for a minute, really kind of deep dive into um, like the inner parts of you that, that might enjoy the violence might find that meaningful in some way.
1: Because the experience of alienation is also the recognition or experience of a lack of connection. And that's why there is so much joy when he's on the hood of the car at the end dancing. It's not because he's celebrating the political victory. Because he's not really political in the explicit sense. But there is a sense in which he's political in the sense of the polis in the sense of connection, in the sense of ethics, in the sense of how should we live, seeking some kind of connection. He doesn't have it with his mother because she abused him. And so he maybe has repressed this abuse. Maybe he isn't aware of this abuse. And so he's kind of always trying to please her and um, live up to a certain standard. And then of course that gets shattered when he realizes that she actually was quite abusive. Maybe that's the return of the repressed. So he kills her and again, That's one moment of his release towards freedom. And then, of course, there's the Thomas Wayne thing, you know, once he finally realized. Uh, Maybe that's his father, maybe it's not, but whatever. He kind of overcomes that. And then, of course, there's the moment where he kills the father at the end. And again, that moment of breaking free. And so it's ultimately he hasn't been able to connect. He hasn't had any kind of social connection. Um, That's why he's like my mother always told me. He tells that story like before stand-up that I would bring happiness and joy or whatever it is to the world. Again, connection, that I would somehow connect with people. I would make them laugh. I would make them smile. I would please them. I would somehow have an immediate connection with people through affectivity and through emotion. But he doesn't have that. He wants that, but his desire is always frustrated. But nevertheless, at the end, he's able to encounter that connection. He can only encounter it through violence. He has to kill the father. He has to kill the big other. He has to break free somehow. But then he's able to have that kind of societal connection. And that leads to an ultimate experience of joy at the end because that's when he has a type of connection. It's an unformed connection. It's not a teleological or any sort of like planned connection with other people for some sort of grand vision of a new world that they're creating, but it's a kind of negative escape from that deconstructive, maybe negative freedom that um, creates a kind of connective revolt. It's that moment of the event, maybe. I don't know if that's that moment of the apocalypse, right? The moment of storming the Bastille, so to speak, where it's unformed and people don't know who they are. They don't have roles, but they know that they're not that thing that they were anymore. And it's that moment of that radical negative freedom that the French love so much to fetishize, right? That that's, that, that's what he tastes a little bit. The problem is is that's he bathes in that. That's the only thing that defines him. He doesn't have a positive Vision. He doesn't have a reconstructive project. It's just purely deconstructive, purely negative, purely destructive, and I think that that's obviously a limitation, and that's why it's not a political vision, and it's just some sort of weird, um, like, anti-ethos or anti-ethical or something like that.
0: Yeah, I, I think you're exactly right in saying that um, he, he, he desires this, like, effective connection with people. It's clear throughout the film. That's what he wants. Yeah. It's kind of beautiful how he wants to like, connect with kids and make them laugh in a pure in a really pure way, um, but just can't do it because of the social and individual limitations that he has. And that eventually he does get it, right? But he gets it in the monkey's paw way, right? Mm. He gets it through violence, um, mm. which kind of makes you think about, well, is the effective connection like always good then? Like it could be bad. Like I, I didn't think mm. about that. I thought effective connections were always good. They're always communitarian, mm. right? And then utilitarian and uplifting. And it's like, no, they're not always that way, right? They don't have to be that way. And um, I do, I think that's exactly right. And the psychoanalytic film actually gives weight, I think, to the most social democratic interpretation, right? It gives like a foundation or an underbelly to it um, Mm. that makes you think a little bit more critically about the social democratic uh, critique of the social conditions that are, you know, creating um, character as he is. I think that's exactly right. Um, And that's, I think, the ultimate. (laughs) it has to ultimately be the way that the film is understood to get the ambiguity out of it. Right. Because both the sort of, um, you know, mainstream liberal and social democratic interpretations of the film don't really allow for the ultimate ambiguity at the end. But the psychoanalytic mm. interpretation does give you the kind of moral ambiguity of the film where you have to tackle, you have to feel uneasy and and tackle your own like individual um, thoughts about role of, of violence and enjoyment and you know we don't like to think about that as being a natural human thing but it is and then you have to think about whether things that are natural are good because they're clearly not always good right and that's an uncomfortable thing to have to face as well um so yeah i think all those themes um are much more i think they're much more in tune with the actual tone and content of the film but also they actually give you something to think about in a way that I don't think that the other interpretations really do. They just let you kind of rubber stamp your interpretation of the film and move on.
1: Yeah. I mean, with that said, I just want to give a shout out to uh, a dude that is a mutual of mine on Twitter. His name's Daniel Tut. Do you follow Daniel Tut? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So he wrote on his website it's danieltutt.com. It's T U T T.com. It's called A Lacanian Reading of Joker. You can find it on his Twitter. His Twitter is just Daniel Tut T U T T, at Daniel Tut, And then you can just go to his website too, danieltutt.com. And so he does a Lacanian reading of Joker that I think is pretty good uh, that talks about exactly this stuff. And then he does a follow up again that is also really good. Um, I say pretty good, I mean, they're both really good. Um, but he does more of this psychoanalytic reading that I think is much more interesting than just the kind of you know, simple, structural, political, or like the liberal kind of, it's an alt-right kind of film reading. And I think it, I think it, he, he wrestles with that ambiguity about the killing of the father and stuff like that, that is really, that's where I think this film becomes interesting. Like this film to me is a much more interesting cultural artifact than it was actually a well-made film. Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And and, and
0: as you're saying, the psychoanalytic reading allows you to have both of the elements of the The liberal rating of it as an alt right film, which it is in some sense, right? It's not that it's not at all like the, like, if the alt right, um, like you know, uh, cultural touchstone, whatever hadn't happened, that this film would be the same. Like, no, it wouldn't. It clearly has that stuff in mind. Because what do both those, those, the social democratic and the it's an alt right film interpretations have in common is like they both have to deal with this sort of ideas of alienation and violence Mm -hmm. and effective connection, all these psychoanalytic. categories um, of experience. So um, in some sense, it has to be both those things, but you have to have um, some of the reading that allows for that ambiguity to arise in a natural way or an organic way. Yeah. Um, So I just want to ask you one thing. Go ahead. Um, Yeah, yeah. I think my favorite thing about the film wasn't even about the film itself, um, which I, I had some misgivings about, but it was actually how you have to think about Batman differently now. And I wanted to get your mm. take on this because Thomas Wayne's clearly like the villain of this film, right? And he's clearly like this mm. horrible asshole who everybody hates with, and it's justified in. There's no ambiguity about Thomas Wayne being being the antagonist of this film and being a bad guy, right? Um, mm. Agreed. And so you almost have to think, and he, actually he meets Bruce Wayne a couple of times, right? So that's meant to point you to the idea that you should be thinking about Batman Um, and, and well, in the watching moment- this film and afterwards.
1: Yeah, and the moment that Joker becomes quote-unquote Joker is also the moment that Thomas Wayne and Mrs. Wayne are killed. Yeah. And so that's kind of the moment that Bruce becomes Bruce, Batman, right? That's It's like both of them emerge and we get introduced to them the way that we're familiar to being introduced to them at the same time. And there's that interesting crosscut between those two moments, right? And that's important, I think. And again, that kind of fits to that that like negative polarity, that they almost need each other. That sometime that somehow they represent these opposite positions within society and that they emerge at the same time but from within different places within their kind of positional context.
0: Yeah. And the way you have to view Batman now, I think, is he is the person who says, No, we have to reinstitute the lie right Mm. that no these people don't actually enjoy violence they're just driven mad by this this crazy you know prophetic madman or whatever right this evil guy Mm. the joker when they weren't right i mean he he was sort of you know almost incidental to this whole thing he was the um like the the memed like figurehead right um Mm. but people like the city was falling apart as is he was just like the the straw that broke the camel's back right um he didn't want to lead them in any way, right? It was just like it just kind of happened. Um, but Batman says, "No, he ruined them. I need to let them go back to their true, naturally good selves who want to work together, right? Hmm. Um, by reinstituting the lie that human beings are actually good and things are getting better—the kind of you know classic progressive vision. Um, if only I, I you know crack a few skulls and <laughs> um, you know catch a few bank robbers, then things will be better, right?" Rather than purely like ignoring the structural conditions that led to the revolt in the first place, so yeah, Batman becomes like this almost weak-willed, um, self-deceived uh, character, right? Um, wow, this like super cop. Um, he kind of becomes like RoboCop, right? He becomes. Uh, so
1: sense. we've we've talked about this in the past, but Zizek makes the distinction between the hysteric and the obsessive. Uh, Joker is the hysteric, the one who is kind of telling oh, yeah, the clip. lie, yeah. but is at least responding to the truth of this, the the this scenario, the symptomatic truth. But Batman in this instance, Batman here becomes the obsessive. He's lying about the structural conditions. He doesn't acknowledge that there's actually a problem at the root cause of, let's say, uh, state capitalism or whatever it is, right? He doesn't acknowledge that, but nevertheless, he has to cover over that lie by instituting some sort of new um some sort of new structure on top of it so he's the obsessive and joker here is the hysteric
0: that's yeah, which is right which is why batman spends all of his money becoming a giant police individual police state <laughs> rather than using his money to rebuild gotham and like put that's together right. an education system and you know, offer people health care and shit like that that's yeah, right the social, the social democratic stuff comes in on the side in this interpretation so it's there that's
1: that's super interesting yeah Um, Do you think it's, we could also, you mentioned Nietzsche earlier, do you think you can kind of make the clean demarcation that Joker is the Dionysian figure and Batman is the Apollonian figure? You know, you have the dancing chaotic on one side and you have the god of order on the other side. That's another. No,
0: I don't think so. Just because, I mean, I think even Nietzsche's point was that those things are always in dialectical tension, right? Yeah. Even within individuals, right? So, and even within like particular ideologies. So, if you think about it that way, I think it makes a bit more sense that, you know, Joker has an Apollonian side in the sense that he finds, in this movie at least, he finds human connection to be sort of meaningful in life. And he wants that more than anything with his yeah. mother and with his father and with his co-workers and with everybody else, right? Um, so he has a sort of um, a purpose, right? Uh, a meaningful purpose that he wants to build towards. And then there's that, that side of him that's the chaotic side that comes out when he's off his medication and um, is, like, you know, pushed to violence and stuff like that. Um and Batman has it too, right? Um, mm. He is formed by this event um in his early life of his you know parents being murdered and then he sets on this idea that he's gonna resolve this tension by um, you know, cleaning up crime on the streets, which caused his parents to die. and that's like, I guess the root of all problems in society is like criminals doing criminality. Mm. Um, but then he clearly has this like, level of en- enjoyment and, and stuff too right he bends the rules for himself and he becomes the exception to everything uh to make it work and so if that wasn't the case batman wouldn't be human at all right mm. he has to have some level of enjoyment there that he gets from him. and that's usually not shown in the films um but uh yeah we need the we need the inside of batman to come out in the next uh next batman film
1: yeah, maybe, maybe lego sick.
0: batman does that best because he enjoys I mean, like puns and, and talking in that Christian Bale guttural voice.
1: Jonah Hill just backed out of the next Batman. So, you know, I, the, the rumors were they thought he was going to be Penguin, but apparently they couldn't find the right price. So he backed out. So I have no idea what they're going to do for the next Batman. Disappointing.
0: Disappointed. It's going to be sad Batman, Batman right? Emo Batman? That's yeah, be it'll probably
1: be one. emo Batman. Yeah, probably. My parents died. Uh, womp womp. My favorite. Womp womp. Yeah. Um. I was going to say two things. One, with regards to the stare metaphor that you really liked or the visual that you really liked, kind of up and down. You know a film that actually does this, I think, a billion times better, and it deals with class, I think, a billion times better? Parasite.
0: Oh, I haven't seen it yet. I can't wait. <laughs> I know. Don't don't spoil anything, though.
1: No, No, but I'm just going to say that it does this. Like, this is what the whole film is about. It moves up and down. And instead of left and right, the whole thing is up and down. And the way that it deals with stairs and going up and down is fucking genius. So I was watching this, and I felt that too. And I actually, even just the way that it was shot, I was a little bit disappointed with how quickly it went from um, kind of like reverse shot to front shot with when he's first walking up the stairs. I wish that they almost did like a breathless style jump cut of him walking up the stairs to kind of emphasize the trudge up the stairs even a little bit more. But they cut a little bit too quickly to the front, and I was like, oh, he didn't struggle enough up the stairs for me and for me a lot of this film was unsuccessful because of the direction in a lot of ways like I didn't buy I mentioned already the kind of like reveal that they do with the relationship with the neighbor but I also didn't even buy the stakes that lead to that ultimate final interview where he ends up killing De Niro's character like it didn't matter to me that he killed De Niro like I didn't actually care, and I know that upon reflection, I can be like, no, but that's a father figure, and that was so important, but I didn't feel like he actually had the attachment to De Niro as much as he did to the platform that De Niro could have offered to him, and maybe that was just my reading of it, but for some reason, I didn't feel the connection between the two of them, and then when they were actually in the interview scene, I didn't feel like there was enough of a connection from De Niro's part because he was still mocking There was never – because it was always under the conditions that I'm inviting you on the show because we're making fun of you and I'm inviting you on the show as just like the laughing stock. I think it would have been more impactful if there was actually a sense in which there was genuinely a moment where De Niro was like, oh, this – Maybe this guy could be talented or he could come on and do something and surprise me or that he actually cared. But he was always a little bit distanced and snarky. And so for me, it didn't make that scene of the interview as connective as I thought it could have been, which then would have led to the murder to be even more shocking and more traumatic and then more of like that breaking free. Whereas to me, it kind of was just like, is he going to kill himself, which was what how he was rehearsing it? Or is he going to kill the guy? And it just it was kind of like, okay, like I didn't really care. I didn't feel like the stakes actually meant anything and I think part of that was because of the direction and I like Todd Phillips as a director but I felt like the direction in this film just lacked a little bit across the board and that's just one of those things that didn't quite work for me. A couple of the relationship things didn't quite work because for some reason they didn't get fleshed out enough for me. So I don't know. The film was a little bit hit or miss.
0: Yeah, I mean I don't I don't think it was necessarily a great film um, or anything but it certainly I think stokes the imagination uh, much more than other comic book films do, like infinitely more, right? Uh and it's in a way, as much as I do enjoy like the Dark Knight and Nolan's Batman films, they're kind of timeless in a way, right? Because they're very, very um clear and unsubtle about the symbolic territory that they're getting in, right? Yeah. Um almost to the point where it's like absurdly unsubtle. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like, come on, like tone it down a little bit, Nolan. Um so, like, I think those films will always, at least Dark, The Dark Knight and then the first one, will always kind of have that that resonance as, as being like a great comic book film. Joker seems like it really only could have come out now, right? Mm. It just, it's, it's so much of its time. Uh, I do, I'm i really interested to see what it, how it's viewed, you know, 10, 20 years down the line. Like, like if the people who saw it, who were in the 20s and 30s uh, in 2019, will still have that uh, particular reaction to it, or they're positively, negatively, ambiguous, whatever. But then people who see it in 20 years, is it going to be like, what the hell is this?
1: Mm. Yeah, I'm curious too. Fuck, I want to see it again in a year. I mean, the political situation probably won't have calmed down, but I still like when it isn't just so hot on social media and stuff like that, you know? Because I, I mean, sometimes just my mood affects how I interpret a film too. I walked out of Melancholia the first time that I saw it. And now I think it's one of the, (laughs) best films that I've ever seen in my life you know so it really just depends on kind of where I'm at also in my own development and maybe in the course of a week and what was that there was a famous tweet or not a famous a viral tweet that went out that was kind of like you know the crazy thing about being a human is I don't know if I'm depressed or if I just haven't eaten lunch or something along those lines (laughs) you know it's like like that kind of thing I don't know if I hate this movie or if I just my blood sugar was
0: low yeah it sucks that nowadays you can't just find a movie and watch it Right, <laughs> can't. You can't just go to Blockbuster and be like, "Oh, this cover looks cool. Let's watch this." Oh, dude, I love
1: Blockbuster.
0: It will never happen again. It, never that'll only happen on a Netflix movie. That's awful, right? Yeah, that's the only time you'll watch a movie without knowing anything about it beforehand.
1: I know, and I'll be honest, man. I am so bored of Netflix right now. Like, I just, I can't do it. I, <laughs> like, it doesn't even entice me. Nothing excites me about Netflix at all. Like I would rather just go to the theater. Although I have done the thing where I've gone to the theater and I don't know much about a film. And I've I've seen a film in the theater before. And that can be kind of fun. But it's just hard because of social media and I'm so plugged in. I'm always on Twitter. I'm always on Instagram. I'm not on Facebook that much. But so people are always going to say something. So even if I try to put the blinders on, I'm going to get something that's going to front load my interpretation. Yeah. I will. But overall, what what did you think? Decent film? Enjoyable film? Worth discussion?
0: Yeah, I think it's certainly worth discussion. I think as a a standalone film, it was a good but not great film and has some some problems and um, inconsistencies uh, in it that we've pointed out. But um, it's certainly, I mean, I think that I'm so done with most of the comic book films, especially the Marvel ones, that this was refreshing just in the sense that I was actually intrigued during the movie for the first time in a comic book movie since I don't know when. I guess Logan was the last one that I actually – I think Logan's probably like the greatest comic book film ever made. Dude. Um, and it was so much better at a lot of the things that Joker tried to do, not to, not in terms of the themes, but just in terms of the tone.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Logan is the best comic book film that's ever been made.
0: And also, you Hands know which, which film is better than Joker, that, that joker better than Joker? What? Do the right thing, man.
1: Oh fuck, I haven't seen that in like twenty years. Why what what?
0: if you want a film that's about like stoking revolution in the underclass and like class war and shit like that and racial tension and all that, fucking watch Do the Right Thing, man. (laughs) That's the movie. And they had the same moral panic about it in nineteen eighty nine or whenever it when it came out as they did Did about Joker. There were people talking about how, like, you can't go and watch Do the Right Thing in a black neighborhood because people, if you're white, because the people will kill you on the way out or something like that. Really? <laughs> yeah, there's all that shit back then. And Spike Lee yeah. had to go on the on the defense and, like, you know, black people are human beings and control their emotions and shit like that. Um, Yeah, same, same reaction to Do the Right Thing, which had a much more, you know, obviously the racial tension there was a bigger theme and, uh, you know, mm. how that stokes, uh, you know, liberal worries mm. more than anything.
1: Damn, I might have to watch that this week, actually. I literally have not seen it in, like, 20 years. So
0: Yeah, it'd be great if you watched it. We should watch it and then do, like, a bonus episode comparing it to Joker. That'd be
1: fun. Oh, that'd be fun. All right. Maybe that's the next bonus episode. No teaser. Sweet. Well, let's go ahead and move into our final segment. This is the Sticky Leaves time segment of the podcast where one of us gets to talk about something that is giving us meaning in a world that is oftentimes perceived as being devoid of meaning. So, Troy, you're up to bat. What's giving you meaning right now?
0: Yeah, so I told you on Twitter this week, dude, that we were going to have a heavy podcast since you mentioned your uh, shitty minute was going to be a little bit heavier and not just about like something stupid on the Internet. Um, My (laughs) Sticky Leaves is not going to be just about some music I listened to or some movie I watched or something like that or some book I read. Um, little philosophical preamble before I I discuss or say what I wanted to say. Um, we've talked a lot in the podcast, I think, about that. There's just kind of um contemporary popular moral thinking, which says that following in good, like utilitarian fashion, um, the pleasure and happiness are the ultimate good things, and that pain and suffering and all the sort of negative affective. States are just naturally bad things, right? And we've challenged Mm -hmm. that a lot. Um, I I think I especially find it like one of my uh, biggest philosophical hobby horses to challenge that notion. Not to say that suffering and pain are good necessarily, but that it's not a neat um, universal distinction there where you can put uh, pain and suffering on the side of the bad and pleasure and happiness on the side of the good always. And I think most people find that intuitive when it comes to pleasure and happiness, not always being good. Like, just ask mm. someone. Do you think that the pleasure that the serial killer gets, or the pleasure that the racist gets from, like you know, using the N word or whatever, is that is that good? And I think most people will say, well, no, I don't think so. But the other mm. side seems more difficult to argue for, right? That pain and suffering can sometimes be not bad, at least. Um, and I think we've talked about on the show. Like, I think my go-to example of that is. Um, playing basketball for me. Um, If you played basketball, it's like you and me played one-on-one, which we did all the time in college, right? If you took the pain out of that, it would actually lose some of its value, right? Mm -hmm. Pain is constitutive of the value in basketball. Now, not entirely, because if you tear your ACL, now it's no longer, it's like disvalue, right? Because you've sort of Mm -hmm. destroyed your body and disabled yourself from playing basketball anymore. Right. Um, but some of the pain is constitutive of the value. And that's different than like getting a shot when you're at the doctor. The pain is necessary for the value of, you know, being healthy or whatever, but it's not constitutive of the good or the value, right? Mm. Um, but in the basketball, it actually is constitutive. If you took the pain out, it would lose value. Mm. And so I think that's true, right? But then it's it seems like a minimal point to make, right? Because it's just a little bit of pain there that's constitutive of the value. I think the bigger point that I've sort of come to recently is there's actually forms of like suffering, which are constitutive of value, but in a way that maybe we don't think about it in terms of being valuable. And I think that there's some times in which we react to tragedy and to bad things happening that are really bad and that are unable to be resolved in a good way. Right? Good cannot overshadow or. A makeup for the bad, right? Like rejecting Leibniz's best of all possible world scenario, mm. right? The good is not the necessary good, or the bad is not the necessary evil that creates the good, right? No, it's unnecessary evil and suffering.
1: Yeah, fuck all that. Uh, this was a purpose. There was a purpose to this sort of shit.
0: Yeah, totally reject that. That's absolutely wrong. And yet still, yeah, there's some f- suffering that is a proper reaction to tragedy, and to bad things happening that's mm. really hard to accept and I wasn't really all that sure about it for a long time and kind of had like a natural antipathy towards that notion because it seems so ugly but, you know um that's the philosophical preamble what happened was mm. uh we lost one of our we lost our pet this week mm. um in kind of a somewhat sudden fashion and it was really really terrible and um that obviously isn't a sticky leaf right but I think that there was some suffering and like you know um, nights of you know tears and crying and bad things that are never going to be turned into good things, right? That's a tragedy that can never be fixed. It's a loss that will always be there, right? Um, and yet, the immediate reaction to it and the, to go through the suffering and grieving process was a proper reaction to tragedy mm-hmm. happening. You, it's actually good in a way to go through that process. If you could take a drug. And not have to go through the grieving process and still come out of it as if you had gone through the grieving process, right? Still come out of it like somewhat refreshed and and through have acceptance, like that, go through like the fifth stage, or whatever, that wouldn't be good. It would lose some of its value, kind of like removing the pain from playing basketball. Right? The grieving process is actually it's not a good that makes up for the bad, but it is a good. Um and you know, I've been thinking about this a lot really since I saw Call Me by Your Name. I think we talked about this back when that movie Mm. came out. Uh, Spoilers for Call Me by Your Name. So if you haven't seen that yet, please Mm. go watch it before you listen to the rest of this. But um, in the movie, right, you have Timothy Chalamet and Armie Hammer, and they're um, having this kind of exploratory homosexual relationship in Italy. And eventually, Armie Hammer leaves, and Timothy Chalamet's character has to suffer through his the loss of his first real love, right? Um, And he spends the whole credit sequence just crying right in the face of the camera, right? Um, And then the previous, Mm -hmm. uh, who who played his father? Tony Chalamet's father in that.
1: I can't remember off the top of my head.
0: But he gives this great speech to him about love and loss and how necessary and good the experience can be, even when the loss happens. And that it's so much better to do that, right? It is good to love and then lose. It's worth it to do it, even though, the sort of tragedy of the loss can't be made up for, right? It's a really hard thing to accept, but he makes that speech It's impassioned. It's beautiful. It's like the, by far one of the best moments in film. The last, I don't know how many. Yeah, years
1: Michael years. Stolberg. Oh yeah, he's a Cohen brothers. Um, actor. Yeah, he's in he a serious. He's an a serious man. Yeah, yeah,
0: he's a great actor. And um, then the end of the movie is Timothy Jama like, crying into the camera for like seven minutes or something like that, right? <laughs> uh, and just beautiful moment, right? Because you're actually. It's like, no, this you, you have to go through the suffering. It's good, right? It's yeah. not the kind of good that makes up for the bad. But if you didn't go through this, you would have lost something else even. In addition to <laughs> the loss, right? It would have been worse. And that, it's so funny, the movie made that case for it in, in this like beautifully effective way, but it's also a philosophical point that I thought was that's why it made it such a great film. And I think that mm. going through like a grieving process like this, even though it's, it's a pet, it's not a human being, Um, really allowed me to reflect a bit and say, yeah, it's, it's true. Like the the grieving and the suffering is, is in a sense good, right? It's constitutive of of the goodness of, um, you know, the acceptance and being able to come through the situation while also saying it doesn't make up for the bad thing that happened, right? The bad thing was still inherently bad. Um, And that's a really hard uh, sort of two principles to accept. Um, but I think that it's true. And I think I came to that realization and it come to that realization and affirming that realization doesn't make up for the bad thing that happened. Right. That thing didn't happen so that I could come to this realization. Like that's the super, uh, like narcissistic thing to think. Right. Um, but I do think it's part of the intellectual grieving process. Um, and I appreciate that that was allowed to happen for me. Hmm. Did you ever make sense?
1: Yeah, Totally. Did you ever read Miroslav Wolf at all when you were in your Oh morning? yeah, of course. He wrote a book called Exclusion and Embrace. An embrace, yeah. That was really important for me when I was in my like evangelical mode. And it deals with this. It deals with the idea and, and I don't think like you've you've reached this like you can say all of these things and I can nod my head and I can be like philosophically, I get what you're saying. I'm not sure that I get it if the emphasis in my get it can mean anything, you know what I like, like you, I think you get it in your heart. Whereas I think I right now I apprehend it in my mind. Right. Um, But I remember the first moment of apprehension of this kind of idea that you're talking about was in Miroslav Volf's uh, Exclusion and Embrace, where he talks about like, when there's a scar, he's like, one of the kind of mistakes of Christianity, he's a theologian for people listening. He's like a liberal theologian from the Yale school. Um, he's like one of the mistakes that kind of conservative evangelicalism makes is that it assumes that somehow it covers over it and it is like you dig a ditch and then you cover over the ditch and it's okay because the ditch has now been covered over and you're fine. He's like, no, 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 the scar never goes away. The scar is always there. But the idea of the embrace isn't that you cover over it, but that's you Im- that you kind of embrace Leaping over the gap that's still there, but the gap is still there, but you still kind of cover over it. You're you're holding over it, let's say. You're holding each other over it. You're still embracing even though there's some sort of severing that's there, but um, that the scar still remains, the cut still remains. It will always leave some sort of scar tissue, if we can use that as a metaphor. And I kind of always thought that was really something that was so profound and important. And I think that we oftentimes miss, especially... In a world like Byung-Chul Han talks about, we live in a world of pure positivity. And it's a world where we don't allow ourselves that lack. We don't allow ourselves to actually feel the doubt, the nothing, the soreness, the pain, the lack, the exclusion. Everything for us has to be, it's fine, it's okay, I'll find something to alleviate. This is a painkiller, this is a problem solver, this is the uh, equation or the algorithm or the algebraic formula that's going to solve, 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 you know, fix, fix, fix. I think what you're talking about is precisely that. No, you can't fix everything, but that in the not that you shouldn't try to, and that you shouldn't. Yeah, 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 yeah.
0: Yeah, Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Uh, We don't. We're we're told that pain and suffering is bad, so that you should take every means you can to stop it from happening whenever it starts. Right. Right. If that means like taking drugs, do that. If that means um, like just getting involved in too many things. So you can't think about it. Do that. If it means just constantly being on the internet to distract yourself from like the pain and suffering at the heart of like your existence and just do that. Right. Yeah. Work um, out,
1: change your diet, go to a community group meeting, join a bowling league, get a college degree, get a better job, buy a better car, save for your vacation, for your retirement, go on holiday more Instagram, become an influencer whatever.
0: <laughs> yeah. And that right? doesn't mean that, that suffering is always good. Of course not. It's almost always bad. Right. And we should try to resolve um, those things, right? This isn't like a place of privilege where it's to be like, you know, try and suffer for you know twenty minutes a day, um, <laughs> so you can sort of have the best, be the best you. Like that's exactly getting it wrong, right? Mm. Um, no, but there's parts of human life that are that suffering is constitutive of, right? Um, mm. So, like, yeah, you should try and alleviate unnecessary suffering always, right? But there are some times where it's where it's necessary, and you have to be really disciplined. Um and figuring out when that is right? um mm. but I do think that it's pretty it's it's you can tell when there are certain things that are just part of human life or that tragedies happen and um the suffering process is a thing that should be gone through and that is you know it is good in a sense, um and divorce those from you know unnecessary sufferings that we should clearly try to ameliorate because they're because they don't involve any value whatsoever,
1: yeah, I mean, I don't want to completely just trivialize this but when you were talking about you said something like like if you could just like take a pill or an injection or something like that and like you'd end up on the other side of the pain like with all the knowledge or whatever without actually having gone through it would it be as meaningful or as valuable it reminds me have you ever heard about those dudes that get calf implants no So, like, you can get calf implants so that your calf muscles are, like, super ripped and, like, all big and stuff like that rather than having to go to the gym and, like, work for months or years in order to build it, like, build up your calves, right? And I wonder if this is similar, right? Like, at the end, you might aesthetically have the calf muscles, but do you think you value the calf as much as, like, the bodybuilder that spends six years crafting the calves? I know that is totally... Not the same as going through <laughs> suffering and losing a pet. So, I'm not trying to trivialize the loss of your pet and compare it to getting calf implants. But you know what I mean? Like, if you just take that quick fix, that like aesthetic shortcut, rather than if you spend years working on it, or like like if you're an artist and you somehow just have an algorithm where you're like, I'm just going to enter in this information and boop, 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 here's the thing. Or the other person that like suffers and conceptualizes and works and you know you try different canvases and you try different strategies and different forms and it doesn't work and then finally one day you get the piece like there is a distinction between those those two processes there's a radical distinction like somehow the pain the work the effort is different and i and i know that that's different than like the pain of suffering and going through something but it's different than um the pain of suffering and going through something it has a different type of process it leads you through different stages of growth and stretching and elasticity and reformation than just simply snapping your fingers and having some sort of like enlightenment as you like pass through and reach the other side without going through those trials and
0: tribulations yeah I think there's an analogy there with what I'm talking about um in terms of like you know pain in some sense being constitutive of the value ascribed to a thing right I think the, yeah. the one difference maybe would be that we're kind of talking here about like human projects um, so that, you know, for one person, it's, it's just analytically true that if you take shortcuts to things, you'll value the end less. Like that seems to me just like, you know, clearly necessarily true. Um, so the person who, you know, works out really hard every day and builds calf muscles is going to value the the state of their body and their health more than somebody who just takes a pill and like wakes up with huge calves or, you know, gets a caffeine plant or whatever. Like, that's just obviously true. Um, But that can differ, right? Because we don't think that everybody should value the exact same things, right? Mm. Um, We're comfortable with people having different ends, right? Um, Different goals. So what I'm talking about might be a little bit different just in this one sense, right? That Mm. everybody goes through grief of losing like a loved one or something you care for. Um, That's universal, Mm. right? And everybody cares. You'd be kind of inhuman if you didn't care about that in some way because being human is in one, in one sense to to care about things right um and especially people and it's analytically true that people in like your family and your you know close relations or people who you care about i guess it's not necessarily true you could hate those people um but the people who you care for are the people who you'll suffer when they you lose them that that is analytically true um, mm. so yeah there there may be a slight difference in that regard but i think it's it's absolutely true that Kind of discussing how, how value works is gonna involve this notion of like work and effort and sometimes pain and suffering. And um you can't just divorce that and think that you no, know, the only things that have value are things that bring you pleasure and happiness. No, you get pleasure mm. and happiness out of things because you find them valuable, not the reverse.
1: Mm. Yeah. What was the kitty's name? Charlie. Charlie. Fuck man. Yeah. For people out there that don't know, he told me about this. I think it was a week ago, man. That uh, that Charlie felt a little sick and his behavior had changed, but there was some hope that uh, that the new medication would would keep him around and alleviate some of the suffering. But just had a, an immediate turn for the worse. That's so shitty, man.
0: Yeah, it is. and that's the thing, right? You can you can say all these things that that I've been saying, we've been saying, and, and also say at the same time it's super shitty and I wish it didn't happen and. It really shouldn't have happened, right? He didn't deserve that, and we didn't deserve that. Um, And that's the the strength of the position: is it can affirm both the depth of the tragedy and the loss, and also the necessity and the goodness of of the grieving process. At the same time, Um, you've got to be able to affirm both those things.
1: Did I tell you about the woman in the hospital whose husband was across from me? Who I think
0: you talked to for a little bit.
1: Yeah. For people who don't know that, so there was a, there was a gentleman across from me in the hospital. He was like in his eighties and apparently he was, he already had like early onset dementia, but he got like really bad pneumonia and then being hospitalized only like rapidly increased the symptoms of dementia. And he really degraded quite quickly when he was hospitalized. And, um, I, I've been saying, I want to go back and visit, but I had like a bunch of people that were like, no, your immune system's weak. You shouldn't go back into the hospital but I want to go because I want to know if they're still there and I want to know if he's still alive but he may have passed at this point um, because he was so weak but I will tell you something that has stuck with me Uh, this was after I had kind of like gotten some mobility back and I was walking through and I was kind of like visiting some of the old people that I had made kind of connections with in my first couple days there and I went into the room where he was and I briefly chatted with the family and she grabbed my arm And she held my arm and I can still feel the softness of her hand on my arm. And she's streaming down tears crying because this is her husband that she's probably been married to for 50 something years, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And his son, uh, his youngest son is on the bed with him. He's in the fetal position kind of holding his hand. And this is gonna sound almost grotesque to even say this, but I'm serious. When she touched my arm, there was something beautiful about tragedy, about loss, about love, about family, about connection, about care and concern that was so, it it, like it it defies words. I feel like even these words make it it cheapen what it was because it was more than that. It was something else. It was something excessive that I can't even say. And um, I don't know. I don't know. There was, it was very impactful. I thought about it a lot. I've actually thought about it a lot since. Like I can't get her out of my mind almost. Um, And I don't want to get her out of my mind. I don't want to forget. I want to think about it more. Like what happened? Like why is there something that was so impactful and so beautiful in that moment of tragedy? And I'm almost hesitant. I know you keep using the word good. I'm almost hesitant to say that there's a good in the midst of that suffering and tragedy. But you used the word earlier and you said there's something proper in it. And I feel like that might be a more appropriate word. There's something proper, like it it fits, like it's right. Yeah, and it
0: recognizes um, something about the state of affairs, which is correct, right? The sort of yeah. recognition of things that's necessary. It would be sort of a a lie or a, like a form of ignorance to not recognize that.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. I don't know. And then and then I do. I still feel like even words kind of cheapen it a little bit you know and i don't want to be all like wittgenstein in here but i am i'm kind of like Shit. no it,
0: it totally does because it's a it's it's something you internally feel right you recognition is a kind of feel um mm. in a sense and so you have to you have to you have to feel it right you don't it's mm. you, you can't really know what it is until you feel it i think everyone has because right? everyone's lost um things and suffered tragedy so everyone has this experience at some point. It really just comes to how you react and, and relate to that experience, right?
1: Mm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, damn, dude, said that it was, was going to be a heavy. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I'm all teary-eyed right now. Damn. Well, all right. Let's go ahead and wrap up the somber episode on that note. Um, thank you guys so much for tuning in. We really do appreciate the love and support that we get. If you've got anything you want to ask us, if you want to reach out to us, Please, you can hit us up on Twitter, owls underscore at underscore Dawn. You can email us, owls at pod, uh, Owls at, dawn podcast at gmail.com. Uh, what's the deal if they leave us a review, T-Roy?
0: Yeah, you leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, five-star review, and you ask a question in your review. As long as we can answer it briefly in the beginning of the show, we will do so.
1: Yep, and of course, um, if you find value in what we're producing, if you want access to bonus content bonus episodes uh, newsletter and to be uh, involved in recommending future episodes go to patreon.com slash owls at dawn that's patreon.com slash owls at dawn and you can throw us uh, a little bit of support and you'll get access to all of that shit so yeah I think that's pretty much everything is there anything else we gotta say in this long winded serious episode Troy
0: just one more completely unserious thing dude. what is that Da Sedan, American speech.